there should be no illusions about China being some sort of wonderful place of socialism and some sort of a socialist model for the world or anything like that. I think that the intervention that my book in some sense tries to make is that instead of only thinking about the development since the late 1970s in terms of a simple transition to capitalism that was kind of a foregone conclusion and capitalism is capitalism. Therefore, whatever they argued in the 1980s, it was just, I mean, going to be capitalism anyway. So what, what do we care, right? So my intervention sometimes is it does matter quite a bit how you transition to capitalism. It does matter quite a bit how you introduce markets. It does matter quite fundamentally how the state relates to markets, whether the state becomes an encasement of markets or whether the state is an active participant in markets that actively shapes and steers markets in ways that um, enable the state to pursue developmental goals that go Mm. beyond pure pursuit of uh, market efficiency. Welcome back to Auf Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Thursday, the 20th of May, and this podcast is Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and myself, Alex Hochuli. Today, we're going to be talking about a defining moment of the end of history, shock therapy, and specifically how China managed to avoid succumbing to it. But to do that and to set the scene, we're going to start talking about Russia, which very much did succumb to shock therapy before we get our guest on the line to talk about China. So, guys, how are we doing? And uh, just as a, as a way to welcome you and, and say hello, uh, what do you think uh, of the disaster of shock therapy? Do you think it's something that's been sufficiently digested and popularly understood? Yeah, uh, that's a good good question to start on. It's it's a fairly neutral question. What do you think about the disaster of X? <laughs> is it <laughs> is it good or bad? Um, no, I mean obviously, as you said, it's a really defining moment in the end of history. Um, just quite, uh, I mean, I I don't know to what extent it's been digested, but it really is is quite a um, shocking transformation of society. Um, and has all phrase. of these. Sorry, to coin a phrase, a shocking transformation, shock therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I didn't even didn't even notice that. Um, but yeah, this this kind of ending of price and currency controls, liberalization, opening up, privatization. It really, um, in the Russian case at least, it's had extremely long lasting and and quite seriously negative. Um, effects and that's you know whatever you think about the Soviet Union I think that's that's clear for all to see yeah I mean Phil there's a sense I think that you know the Soviet Union was so sort of derelict by that point that that although people will think oh shock therapy maybe went too far but you know Russia was was a basket case anyway and so therefore the social consequences can be somewhat ignored I mean do you think that's the right way to understand it I think it's not been absorbed in the West, the sheer kind of um, degradation and humiliation and the social costs, just how Russian society more or less disintegrated. And I don't think that's um, properly appreciated. And 
and at the same time, I mean, you know, the Soviet Union was a kind of um, an incredibly um, dysfunctional and decrepit society. So managing its transformation would always have been difficult um, in any case. But, you know, I mean, there's no doubt shock therapy was a disaster. And I think also, I mean, there's other things too. Um, it also came kind of with a political collapse. And so whatever kind of... Um, whatever recompense, you know, the cultural or cultural kind of um, political payoff they might have been from once having been a great power also retracted. And so it's an it's a incredibly important moment. Um, in addition to which, I mean, I think also, you know, at various points across the transition period, the value of the ruble collapses and Russia at some points effectively becomes a dollar economy. If you think about kind of Russians in the 1990s relying on dollars and hard currency to for the economy to function, it would I imagine it would effectively feel like a country that was under occupation, you know, that it had effectively lost the Cold War and was occupied. They were using the currency of um, of their former of their former enemy. Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, just to give a sense of of sort of the consequences, because we're going to be talking, of course, about the counterexample of China, about how China avoided shock therapy. Um, so it might be good to start off with discussing what the what the example was of, of shock therapy. And specifically in Russia, I mean, the case might be not so severe in certain other Eastern European countries, but in Russia specifically, uh, the short and long term economic consequences were extremely grave. I mean, there's a massive fall in industrial output. Um, Russia's per capita GDP by 1998, as a proportion of the world average, had fallen to levels not seen since the late 1950s. I mean, it's just incredibly dramatic. Um, and, you know, it's not like Russia improved greatly after that. There was a 1998 crisis, and then there was a global financial crisis in 2008. And the period after that, Russia also continued to grow very slowly at around 0.3%, which we can compare with 7% for China. And I think I mean, there's a social consequences, which you've already hinted at. I think they're fairly well known, but it's worth recapping. In 1988, a man could expect to live to 65 in the Soviet Union. By 1994, so only a few years later, this had dropped to 57. And it didn't return to those 1988 levels until 2012. Uh, it's the biggest uh, drop in life expectancy ever recorded anywhere in peacetime um, and in the absence of any physical catastrophes. So that was also associated with other social problems like uh, alcoholism, suicide, and murder. Um, and even unemployment, which people expected there to be mass unemployment, and the figures didn't quite show it, but it's often disguised because employees were sent on long unpaid holidays or partly paid holidays throughout the 90s. So in that period, I think there's a great statistic that one in four of the Russian workforce was on some form of unpaid or low paid leave. So real loads of disguised unemployment. And uh, of course, the political consequences are clear, which Phil's already hinted at, you know, the authoritarianism, instability, and of course, the creation of the oligarchs. To just broaden this out before we call up our guest, it's worth remarking that the disaster that Russia uh, experienced in the 1990s was in some ways a repeat of the disaster of the third world after the 1980s debt crisis and um, and structural adjustment, also you know featuring loss a lost decade or lost decades. In recent decades, there's been a, maybe in certain places a bit of a recovery um, through the commodity supercycle in particular, but that's been also followed by lost decades in certain places. So there seems to be no real sense of catch-up development happening anywhere other than in China. And I think that's a question which we'll have to ponder towards the end of this episode. So just to give you a sense of what we're going to cover, we'll start by talking about where China was in 1949 during the Chinese Revolution before scanning forward over the decades, looking at how China worked, 
and how its economy was structured during the revolutionary period. Then we'll come on to how China abandoned Maoism to instead pursue growth and development at all costs during the reform period as of 1976. All of this that we're going to discuss has major implications for how we understand development under capitalism and whether there's a Chinese model that can be adapted elsewhere. So we're going to discuss that too. And we'll finish by talking about the future of development and of course about the end of history and whether the emphasis on growth at all costs is China's own version of the end of history. Not liberal and not democratic, but maybe an end of history all the same. So with that in mind, uh, let's call up our guest who we're all very eager to speak to. It's Isabella Weber. All right, so we're delighted to be joined by Isabella Weber, who is a Perry Research Associate and Research Leader in China Studies and Assistant Professor of Economics at Amherst. And we're here specifically to discuss her book, called How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Uh, and it is as fascinating as I hoped it would be, because when I saw the title and I saw people discussing it on Twitter, I was like, wow, this is a book that I really need to read. And in fact, um, I regret having taken until May to get round to it. Um, the book, just to give a, a brief description before I bring in Isabella, uh, it covers a huge amount of ground. It was, I was really surprised by this. It covers ancient Chinese thought, uh, U.S economic decision makers during and after the Second World War. Uh, it covers interactions between Chinese economists and policymakers and their counterparts in Eastern Europe and Latin America. And then, of course, it covers the history of, of, well, at least the economic history of China and the history of economic thought in China from the revolutionary period under Mao all the way to the reform period in the 1980s under Deng Xiaoping and beyond. One kind of thing that I quite enjoyed uh, from it is that it's kind of peppered with wonderful Chinese idioms used by actors in China's developmental drama, uh, which end up really illustrating competing political and economic approaches. So, I mean, just a kind of hand wave at some of them, there's talk about birds flying in cages, uh, using stones to cross a river and so on, which really bring to life um, what might otherwise be kind of drier uh, economic debate. Um, so anyway, with that, all, all that said, uh, welcome, Isabella. Delighted to have you. Thanks so much for having me. And just to be sure, the book is about to be published, so we are not at all late here in terms of meeting in May. No, no, absolutely. I've, I've just been wanting to read it since the beginning of the year, since I first heard about it. So, um, <laughs> But anyway, we're glad to be doing it now. And so I've obviously spent a lot of time uh, researching in China as well for this book. Can you tell us a little bit maybe uh, of your time there and, and kind of what you what you found of it? Sure. Um, so this book is really based on my PhD research, um, where I've been conducting interviews with uh, key participants in China's economic reform debate in the 1980s. Um, of course, my selection was biased in the sense that I mainly got to speak um, to the younger participants in this debate. Um, but I shall say that I missed uh, some of the older ones by just a very small margin. Many of them became incredibly old, some of them more than 100 years, which is um, mind boggling if you think about what they have lived mm. through in terms of Chinese history, um, two, two or even three revolutions, depending on how you count and so on. So I was basically um, in China, I had a number of key um, entry points um, through um, through contacts that I had made um, back in the UK. Um, and uh, then like through the principle of snowballing, but after I had talked to five, six um, key participants, they would introduce me to the next ones. And I was basically there sitting down um, with people and trying to understand their perspectives on the 1980s and their involvement in, 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 in this, um, in this path defining debate um, at the crossroads of reform. Was yeah. there, was there a difference between the, um, 
the kind of that Chinese elite of the 1980s and the Chinese elite of today? Well, so, I mean, the people that I got to speak to is, of course, not those that turned out to be um, the, 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 the ones who are leading politicians today, right? So, for example, someone like Bo Xuanzang or Zhou Xiaotuan um, would, would be too busy to take time and too important to take time um, to do an interview um, with a PhD researcher. Um, so, in that sense, uh, I, I guess um, the, the, there's a difference within that generation itself. Um, and of course, there's a difference between the political scene of the 1980s and, and what is happening today. I think the main difference really lies in the fact that the 1980s was a moment of very genuine openness, where it was not clear where things were going to go. Um, and that presented a kind of discur discursive context that certainly is, is, is not there anymore in that form today. That's really interesting and something we're going to come to uh, as we move forward in this and especially at the end as well. Um, we'll be talking about the end of history. Um, so let's to, to get started, let's get started at the middle of your narrative, actually. Um, where was China after the revolution? Um, it was one of the poorest countries in the world. It's something that may often be forgotten, actually. Um, and yet one of the sort of paradoxical things you note about China in you know, the early 1950s um, and throughout really the, the Maoist period was not necessarily fast growth, very much on the, to the contrary, but price stability. Um, so tell us, I guess, firstly, maybe uh, what is price stability and what was important about price stability to the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, so we tend to think of price stability as an incredibly conservative policy goal. Um, just now in the US, the whole debate on um, massive stimulus programs, uh, National Investment Authority and all of that, and the fear of inflation that comes with it, the fear of inflation is typically attributed to the right wing in that debate, right? So it comes as a surprise that um, the Chinese communists would have had such a strong emphasis on price stability. Mm, yeah. What what do we mean by price stability? Where well, we mean that prices in general don't have a very strong trend. So there's no strong inflationary tendency, basically. Now, why was this um, so, such a central concern? I mean, I'm not arguing that price stability was the central concern of China's uh, communist leaders, but it was an important concern in economic policymaking. Um, the context being that in the 1940s and in the civil war, um, hyperinflation was rampant in China. And um, one interpretation of the communist victory is that the communists really won the war economically by being able to bring hyperinflation under control, or put differently, that um, the downfall of the nationalists was not least because of their failure to bring hyperinflation under control. So as such, um, the question of inflation was incredibly politicized. And um, the very rapid success of the communist um, government after the revolution to stabilize prices in, in the matter of only a couple of months was incredibly unexpected and was an important breakthrough in economic terms in generating legitimacy for, um, for, the, for the communist project from this very narrow economic um, point, view, view, sorry, point of view. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is quite surprising to learn that uh, early on. And before we advance the narrative a little bit further, 
I should probably highlight or ask you to highlight what the role of price stability is, or specifically price liberalization and its relationship to marketization. Because of course, what we're moving towards is this uh, economic reform debate in the 1980s and about how far China should liberalize and how quickly it should do it um, about shock therapy or or not. Uh, and one of the ways, I guess, of, of evaluating shock therapy or the thing that you identify as the key element to it is price liberalization. So could you talk us through that, what the relationship is between price liberalization and uh, sort of the big bang liberalization shock therapy sort of package? Yeah, so broadly speaking, shock therapy is a policy paradigm that presumes that short-term suffering is necessary um, in order to achieve a new economic system. But at the same time, this new economic system, namely a market economy, could be achieved very quickly. So you could basically jump to a new kind of economic system as a whole, right? That's the, the basic idea um, in it of it. Um, now, it was acknowledged even by the most hardcore shock therapists that privatization would be a slow and complicated process since you would have to rearrange all sorts of institutional um, settings, right? And that would take time. So there are all these quotes of how even Thatcher, one of the most committed uh, privatizers would have taken several years to privatize um, UK um, state-owned assets, even though they were um, nothing in, 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 in terms of size compared to, say, the Russian or the Chinese case, right? right. So this is one aspect to it. But an, another deeper aspect is that, um, that price liberalization has, since it can be implemented quickly, has the ability to um, impose a shock to the economy, right? And therefore give the impetus for this rapid jumping to a new system. Now, why would you want to start with prices? Um, the basic reason being that um, from the perspective of neoclassical economics or the kind of economics that underpins shock therapy, having rational price signals um, is absolutely essential for having a market economy. There's no point in having privatized enterprises if they cannot act upon a rational set mm. of prices. So you need to get, as economists like to say, the prices right in order to have a functioning market. So therefore, um, this centrality of the price mechanism. And all of this is not to say that privatization and trade liberalization is not incredibly consequential and are um, important elements of shock therapy as it has been um, implemented yeah. in, uh, around the world. But um, the initial shocking element is, is the big bang in, in, in price liberalization. No, that's very useful um, to sort of uh, set what the terms are here. Um, Let's before we kind of delve more deeply into that, uh, we should maybe just look at what China was like up until the kind of reform period starting in 1976. So from the revolution in 1949 up to 1976, there was obviously loads of shifts under Maoist China. Um, but at the same time, there was this adherence to price stability. And you've already said that this was uh, in some ways a reaction against the hyperinflation, um, which undid the nationalists. Um, maybe if we could just paint a picture of what Chinese development was like at this time, uh, what was industrialization like? Uh, you write in the book that uh, industrialization was driven by funds extracted from the peasantry. So the peasants actually suffered quite a lot under this, uh, under this period and this drive to industrialization. So could you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so um, basically, if you think of a more or less closed economy that is trying to industrialize, then if you think of it in, in very basic terms, this means that you have to have someone who is producing food for workers who are, say, building steel plants, um, who will not be <laughs> producing food or clothes or any kind of consumption goods for themselves, right? So you have to feed people to do stuff, um, for example, in building up heavy industry that is not immediately adding to the consumption fund, right? So you have this issue of um, needing some sort of a surplus um, in order to be able to finance um, industrialization, right? Now, in a very large, very poor agricultural country, like um, China was at the time, the source of these quote-unquote surpluses was really the countryside. So in some sense, this was squeezing the peasants um, to extract surpluses, or often more than surpluses, from the peasantry in order to fund um, the industrialization project. So you get this um, slight contradiction where on the one hand, um, the, there is of course a glorification of peasants, the people's communes are the most important um, location of the revolutionary project and all of that. And at the same time, you get this heavy redistribution from mm -hmm. the countryside to the urban industrial economy in the name of um, industrial development. Yeah, no, that's that's um, fascinating and something which um, I probably wasn't uh, sufficiently aware of. And there's a great statistic that 80% of the population was in the countryside, but only 10% of state investment was allocated to agriculture. And so no doubt that caused some tensions. Um, I'd love to dwell more on, on this period. And of course, there's so much to talk about the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, but we'll have to jump forward uh, to the period which I guess interests us most, or you know, that you dedicate uh, the bulk of the book to, which is uh, reform as of 1976. So one thing that you argue there is that the move to reform uh, wasn't driven by necessarily any new theoretical insights or ideological battles, but was the product of an urgent need. Um, so what was that urgent need? What were the conditions uh, in the mid 70s that led China to feel that they needed to reform and change course? Yeah, so um, by the time that Mao died in 1976, the Cultural Revolution was uh, really over. I mean, some date the end of the Cultural Revolution before Mao's death. So in that sense, the idea of um, developing through politics and command to move forward through the enthusiasm of the masses, um, con continuous revolution and all of that um, was really, um, was really um, on, on, on the way out. Um, Mao's dedicated hair, Hua Guofeng, um, is typically characterized as someone who has had an attitude of so-called whatever, whateverism, which is um, thought of as Hua Guofeng, basically trying to simply continue whatever Mao would have done. However, what Hua Guofeng did, in fact, which is not often um, considered uh, in great depth, um, is that he started a new push forward in economic development. He started a new great push attempt at industrialization that this time was meant to be financed um, through foreign, sorry, that was meant to be financed through the discovery of petroleum and that was meant to be fueled through foreign um, technology. However, it turned out that these uh, petroleum 
projections, findings of petroleum that were projected, um, were not actually there. Um, so that this financing mechanism ra ran into difficulty um, very quickly. And that um, the, the, the massive um, technology transfers um, from abroad would be incredibly costly. And that basically this attempt at once more trying to push forward with industrialization um, ran out of steam very, very quickly. Um, so this kind of created a situation where the, the revolutionary attitude of late Maoism, the attempt of once more pushing through with a great industrialization plan, both had failed. So then there was this question of what is going to come next? And at the same time, um, there was, of course, a sense of China still being incredibly poor after decades, um, sorry, decades after the, the revolution, there was still a sense of, um, of, of, um, of not having achieved um, basic material progress of the kind that had been envisioned. So this was kind of the setting um, when, when, when Deng Xiaoping um, steps on the scene, if you want, so when Deng Xiaoping ascends to power, um, and it became clear fairly early on that there was a need for reform and that there was a need to um, give up on certain revolutionary ambitions and to give up on trying to revolutionize the social relations of production first and instead focusing on developing the forces of production or achieving economic progress um, at pretty much all costs. So this was kind of the, 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 the big starting point um, of reform, this notion of having to shift from emphasizing ever more revolutionary social relations of production to emphasizing the development of the forces of production at all costs. Yeah, and that's quite uh, a big paradigm shift, really. Um, and, you know, it has implications for the interpretation of socialism um, and what socialism means, which is something we're going to come back to uh, after we kind of continue through the historical narrative yeah. and, and the beginnings of the reform debate. Um, there's loads of things which I want to ask, which I don't know if we're going to have time for. But so maybe if you just want to intersperse references to this as you go along, uh, feel free to do so, because you look at how um, interactions and learnings from other places and times inform that reform debate in China in the 1980s. So the experience during war and post-war uh, in the West, especially in the US and the UK, uh, interactions with Eastern European economists, uh, interactions with Latin America, learnings that they have from Brazil and so on, um, which are all actually fascinating um, and really enliven the book kind of, you know, with its sort of geographical span that that you that you bring in. But um, but I don't know if we have time to dedicate much time to that specifically. So maybe let's move on to the reform debate. And if you want to re make reference to that, please do. Um, so you note that, you know, obviously there was severe uh, economic difficulties at the end of the 70s. But by 1984, that was no longer the case. So how did uh, sort of living standards and, and poverty rates improve um, up till the mid 1980s when the kind of reform debate was really alive? Yeah, um, before we go into this, let me just insert really quickly that in the late 1970s, this shift from an emphasis on the 
um, on revolutionizing the social relations of production to developing the forces of production did indeed also come with some sort of a reinterpretation of socialism, right? So there was a sense that, um, that China had chumped the stages of history um, too quickly and that in fact China at, at its very low level of economic development had to quote unquote make up lessons from capitalism and therefore learn from capitalism in order to be able to then later on um, ascend to higher stages of, of socialism. Um, so this was very much part of the beginning of the ideological reversal, which then set the stage for the reform debate and which also legitimized the so-called opening up the minds to the world. Um, because if you want to learn from capitalism and you want to make up lessons from capitalism, and this means that you need to basically um, consult whatever kind of economic expertise you can um, get hold of, right? So you get this yeah. burst open um, to all sorts of economic perspectives, um, starting in the late 1970s, for example, with um, German auto liberal and proponents of the social market economy, but then very early on also people like Milton Friedman um, and prominently um, Eastern European emigre economists um, who, who um, had been often banned from their own socialist home countries and were exiled in the West, but were invited to China um, to share their thoughts on both um, theoretical insights on economic reform under socialism, but also lessons of failure of previous um, reform attempts in Eastern Europe. Okay, sorry, to, to go back to your question of 1984. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so the big breakthrough in terms of living standards was really the initial agricultural reforms. So, um, and this was actually something that the Eastern Europeans, when they came to China, noted as absolutely remarkable because they came from a perspective of failure. They perceived their own attempts in their own countries, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, as um as failed attempts at reforming socialism. And they saw the agricultural reforms in China as um, in some sense, the first time that they had seen astonishing successes of marketization under socialism. Now, what oh, was- Sorry, it's, sorry Isabella, just, just to, to ask a quick question of clarification. Um, when is this? When, when are these successful agricultural um, reforms and when do the- um, the Eastern Europeans come in and see them and think, well, this, this, is, this is what we could have been doing. Okay, um, so the, the, the agricultural reforms pretty much start in 1978 with the beginning of, um, of reform and opening up. Cool. The um, big breakthrough in agricultural reform and in agricultural productivity and output is in many ways achieved by 1984. And in the second half of the 1980s, the inherent difficulties with marketizing agriculture actually start to become apparent. Um, the Eastern European reform economists, um, people like Bruce, Schick, and so on, start to visit China already in 1978. Um, and there are a, a series of, of visits um, um, in, in, in the very early, sorry, late years of the 1970s and very early years of the 1980s. Um, so this is really as as the agricultural reforms are unfolding in, in, in front of their eyes. Um, so what 
what is it with these agricultural reforms? Um, why, I mean, wh what happened there? Um, they are at times described as a gradual, um, which I think is partially misleading because in some sense they were extremely radical since they implied the dismantling of the communes, which given that the very vast majority of people in China was still living in the countryside, was a very, very big political change, right? Um, initially, the, the agricultural reforms basically amounted to a shift in policy where previously the communes would have been responsible for delivering a certain um, grain output, a certain grain quota to state authorities at a planned price set by the central authorities, okay? In the process of reform, the responsibility for producing a share in that quota was shifted from the commune or the production teams or higher up levels of, of socialist organization back to the household so that um, within the agricultural economy, the organization of production really changed dramatically from one that was organized through the commune to one that was organized through the household. Now, why can we still think of this as leaving the um, relationship between the urban industrial economy and the agricultural economy largely in place? The reason is that, um, that the quota stayed in place, the state set prices stayed in place, but the responsibility within the agricultural economy changed, okay? Why would this encourage agricultural output? The basic reason being that as households were allowed to produce above the quota and sell on the market, and as there was still a context of relative shortages of agricultural products, prices on the market for agricultural products at the time they're very high. So if you could squeeze out only a little bit more of production, being an agricultural household, you could um, earn a pretty big markup by selling your output on the market. Hello, listener. Alex here. Sorry to interrupt, but we've got some very exciting news to tell you. BungaCast is pregnant. The end of the end of history is soon here. The book, co-written by George, Phil, and myself, will be out on the 25th of June. The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, is our attempt to synthesize the discussions we've been having on this podcast over the past four years, and to advance an argument as to how and why the deadening end of history period had to end, as well as to look forward to what comes next. In the book, we describe what the end of history felt like, and why what we're now experiencing is such a huge rupture. The hysteria of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, the rise and fall of the left populism of Bernie or Corbyn, multiple varieties of angry anti-politics around the world, new fronts of the culture wars and mass protests. These are all facets of our new time. We also look at how new ideologies are emerging under the impact of the pandemic, which are set to rule the world for the next decade. And of course, our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi makes a big appearance. It's available to pre-order now. Go to bungacast.com slash book for links and more info. Happy reading. We really do hope you enjoy it.
So you've got this context, obviously, of a big ideological change, a change from pursuing socialism through kind of directly political means at all costs to one where economic development becomes the primary objective. Um, at the same time, you have improving conditions because agricultural output has increased. So, you know, maybe poverty isn't as grave as it was before. Um, so what was then driving, what was the momentum driving the need for reform in the mid-1980s? Um, and especially this idea that it wasn't about whether you should reform or not, but about what kind of reform happens or how to reform. Uh, what was what was the, the sort of material reality that was driving that? Yeah, um, so as I've just explained, um, markets had been introduced in this dual track system in the agricultural economy, right? So um, as households were no longer only catering to the plan, but were also catering to the market, there was a dual track system where they were they're really oriented towards two systems, right? Now, the question of how to reform the urban industrial economy was slightly different since the organization of the urban industrial economy before reform was quite different um, from the organization of the polit of, of, of agriculture. So obviously speaking in stylized terms, but nevertheless, um, in terms of ideals, the urban industrial economy was organized based on the principle of one great national workshop, um, which meant that every production unit would be contributing to this, what is perceived as one big workshop as one production unit, rather than as an enterprise that is operating on its own accounts. Okay, right. so this means that every production unit would have been assigned their inputs and would be delivering their outputs at prices assigned by some higher up authority to the next um, entity in the chain, okay? And thereby prices were set very explicitly in a way that were not necessarily reflecting the costs of each production unit, but were set in a way to redistribute across sectors, okay? So certain sectors um, that were meant to serve as means of extracting liquidity from the system, such as so-called luxury goods, were priced very high, whereas goods that were perceived as being essential for the industrialization project were priced very low, such as steel, coal, copper, and so on. Okay, If you have such a system, and you believe that, that your, the organization of your economy is not up to the task um, to achieve higher levels of economic development, and that towards that, you need to introduce more market dynamism, okay, <laughs> then you're facing some sort of a conundrum because um, each of these production units is part of this big system, right? So how do you turn them into um, entities that are somehow being driven by um, market dynamics. Right. Okay, so this was the very basic problem that um, was really a serious and difficult problem to, to tackle. Now, why would they want to introduce markets? The reason being that, um, well, yes, it's true that agricultural reform had achieved a, a, an astounding 
um, progress in agricultural output in a fairly short amount of time. But the ambition of the Chinese leadership was, of course, not simply to escape the worst aspects of poverty, right? In some sense, in this direction, um, China had already made quite substantial progress, as one of the work buying people that I interviewed uh, was saying, um, you would see poverty in China, but you would not see the kind of atrocious poverty that you see in India that wouldn't let you sleep in your hotel at night. Um, so, um, it's so just a- just on that, um, Isabella, if we could, if you could maybe talk to us a bit about the who are the main players in the reform debate, um, and how did it play out factionally in terms of the different um, schools of thought. Um, the different kind of power players in the debate. Can you talk us a bit through that? Sure, sure. So um, in trying to solve this conundrum that I've just laid out, right, they were broadly speaking on the side of people who believed that more markets were necessary um, towards more economic progress. But broadly speaking, two sides. One side um, was very much composed of an alliance of first-generation revolutionary leaders and so-called young intellectuals who had been sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution and who had spent often up to 10 years or even more of from their teenage days to their mid-20s um, in the villages, in the communes um, as, as sent-down youth, right? So they come back to the cities in the late 1970s as Deng Xiaoping is reinstating the university entrance exam. And um, some of them were fairly highly connected through family and friendship ties. And they had during their time in the countryside thought about how could we reform um, the agricultural economy? So when all these agricultural reforms start to happen, Um, they actually kind of self-organize and say, okay, we want to be part of these massive changes that are happening in our country and started um, the so-called Agricultural Development Group um, that then received support from from several key um, older generation leaders, such as Deng Liton, Du Rongsheng and others, um, who hold the hand over them and say, okay, we give you resources, go out and research how the agricultural reform experiments are going. Uh And since they are this kind of third entity in the system, they are not part of the official um, academic structure within China. Many of them are not even yet party members. Um, Uh So they are really an entity outside of the official system, but are doing very thorough research on what's going on on the ground. So given that they are somewhat outsiders, they... um, claim a certain authority and due to their direct ties with people that are fairly high up, they Mm -hmm. fairly quickly get the attention of the central leadership and become an important force to legitimize the agricultural um, reform breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Now this group then, I mean, broadly speaking, this group develops into new players come in and so on, but broadly speaking, they suggest that the same logic of the agricultural reforms could also be transferred into the question of urban industrial reform, which is namely (laughs) that you use a dual track system also for industrial production units, okay? Now, the argument was that to some extent, 
this was already happening on the ground. Because if you think about it, if agricultural production is increasing and township and village enterprises are starting to pop up, all of them need industrial inputs, right? They need fertilizers, they need certain kinds of tools, maybe shovels, maybe maybe some of them might even have started to use tractors or whatever, right? They need inputs yeah. that are produced outside of the agricultural system, which means that in a gray area, as the agricultural reforms were taking off, the urban industrial um, system was already starting to yeah. cater to a market that was emerging in the agricultural sphere, okay? So this group of researchers argued that this principle that was already spontaneously emerging should be formalized and should be turned into government policy and should be used as a mechanism for reform. Okay, so, so just just to, just to put a point on what the stakes were here, or I guess what the how the opposition sort of played out um, between these groups, I, the, what you're talking about here are people who are advocating a form of gradualism, right? Um, they're people who are not the shock therapists. They're they're sort of against that. They're finding a sort of a more uh, pragmatic, iterative approach to introduce the market without doing this sort of big bang liberalization. Is that right? Absolutely. So the idea is that um, basically each production unit would continue to cater to the plan. Okay, they would continue to fulfill their commitment to plan in terms of output, um, receiving inputs, and all of that. Right. So you leave the core of the system running, but you tell every individual production unit if you can produce more than you need to produce for the plan feel free to do so, and you can sell that on the market, okay? So the idea is that you maintain the plant relations, the relations of command and order of the plant economy running, but at the same time, allow production units to gradually be transformed into enterprises that cater to the market and as this process is becoming more and more powerful, these production units actually eventually will no longer be just entities that are receiving orders from higher levels, right? That are just an, a, mm -hmm. a link in a chain of command and order, but instead become entities that are operating on the market and that are becoming marketized institutions, okay? So this is one logic, which at the core of it, um, starts from the presumption that we leave the core of the old system running. And in fact, we use the institutions of the old system to create markets at the margin, then use this market dynamism to transform the system as a whole. This stands in sharp contrast to the, to the logic of shock therapy, which um, was emerging at the time out of an amalgamation of the introduction of neoclassical economics, conversations with Eastern European market socialists, um, and also already visitors like Milton Friedman, who in China was very explicitly arguing for um, overnight price liberalization of the th same kind that he would have advised um, in the UK. Um, so okay, so th so this is so these gradualists then are having the upper hand, right? I mean, they're being successful, I guess, in avoiding what we now know as the very damaging consequences of shock therapy, right? Um, and so, I mean, if we could just advance the narrative a little bit, um, because what happens is that China seems to avoid uh, this sort of big bang approach, but then it has a crisis in 1988. 
and shock therapy is on the agenda again and, and it's at the brink. So what happens right there? Because it's a, it's a really important moment and it's one year before uh, Chanaman Square. So talk us through that. Yeah, so um, we have to acknowledge that the idea of shock therapy is that there's a very clean and quick solution, right? I mean, it, it does involve short-term pain, but it suggests that you can establish a new economy pretty much overnight or at least in the span of a, a very short period of time, okay? On the other hand, this gradualist experiment, experimentalist process takes time and the process itself starts to, to become messy, okay? As you have these production units catering both to the plan and to the market, all sorts of messy dynamics start to take hold, including a tendency towards corruption. So as this, this marketization from the margins is developing and is showing all the difficulties that marketization involve, the promise of having a clean cut solution, a solution of one fell swoop of the knife um, mm. kind of um, breakthrough becomes attractive. Right. So in 1986, um, for the first time, Charles Young sets up a program, who was then premier, um, sets up a program office and basically prepares all the plans for a um, so-called package reform that would have involved um, very far ranging, very fast price liberalizations, wage reform and tax reform. This then is basically halted, um, not least as a result of a delegation that on George Soros's account travels to Hungary and Yugoslavia and surveys attempts at um, overnight uh, price reforms in these countries and comes back with the message, this is extremely dangerous. If we do this, what we get is cost push inflation and we will undermine the project of reform. This will not solve, this will not cut the Gordian knot. Instead, this will undermine our project in very fundamental ways. So Zhao Ziyang pulls back stops this whole project and says, okay, we have to go back to this former approach. It's messy, it's complicated, but we can work it out as long as we are patient and we, we, we try to do it. Then in 1988, I mean, this whole process continues. It becomes more and more clear that um, reform stands to not benefit everyone equally, um, that reform does have costs, that... Um, the slashing of certain privileges that came with the socialist um, system was starting to take hold, but also that certain prices started to be liberalized that actually affected people's consumption baskets quite directly. So that for the first time you get a sense of, okay, all of this reform, like 10 years in, it's, it's, it's not simply a great party. It's not simply um, a everybody stands to win type of situation. Instead of this is, this is something that, that will harm substantial parts of the population, especially those that were fairly off um, under the old system. And in addition, the agricultural reform that had shown these wonderful achievements in the first years actually then also starts to show the problems of having a marketized kind of um, agricultural system where you can get fairly violent price swings and you can get dynamics um, that are quite quite that, that, that can be quite devastating to those producing households um, that were still, I mean, they had 
they had become richer than they were in the mid-1970s, but they were still very poor, right? In 1980, mm. China's GDP per capita was less than that Sudan and Haiti. So even wow. if you had made progress, <laughs> you were still very poor, right? Um, okay, so you, you, you have this, this, this situation where there is progress, social tensions are mounting, but at the same time, there is also a sense of, okay, marketization is a messy thing. It does unleash um, corruption. It does come along with all these problems. So in this mounted context of tensions, plus as a result of the, these tensions, a uh, 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 sentiment on certain um, fractions within the leadership that reform has gone too far, that this was standing to undermine the socialist project, that this was getting to the point where if you use the metaphor of um, of Chen Yun, of, of the bird in, in, in the cage, um, where the idea was to, yes, we want to have the bird um, fly more freely in the cage, but we don't want to let it free outside of the cage, right? Um, so Great metaphor, the, yeah. <laughs> there was a sense of, okay, we are at the, at the brink of pushing the door of the cage open, right? So in that, as a result of this, there was also mounting backlash from those um, within the party um, who, who thought that this was going too far. So in this whole context, in 1988, Deng Xiaoping, who also has a sense of um, becoming old and needing to show success <laughs> as long as he still stands um, to, to, to have sufficient power to, to, to lead the way, um, basically starts to promote radical price reform himself. Um, so Deng Xiaoping, ironically, in a meeting with the North Korean delegation, um, says in the spring of 1988 um, that, um, that China had to take risks, that it was better to um, endure short-term pain in order to lay the foundations for long-term prosperity. All of these forms of rhetoric that we know right. um, of shock therapy from around the world, right? I mean, adjusted to the Chinese context, he then um, also uses these metaphors from ancient stories of, of a, a general that um, would slice every person that comes his way in half and thereby like takes great risk. I mean, these kind of very <laughs> violent um, metaphors um, that make clear that Deng Xiaoping is dedicated to this project and that he's willing to take risk and that he's willing to pay a price in order to solve the, 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 the problem of of price liberalization. So one and one irony that comes out, you mentioned, is that the, the young gradualists um, who debunked shock therapy and in the following year, in 89, they support the students at Tiananmen Square. Um, they actually suffer and they suffer the fallout of um, going of coming out behind the students. And yet the package reformers, as you call them, the ones who supported faster liberalization, um, they turn out to benefit. So even though the, the ones who pushed for faster liberalization were wrong in terms of the Chinese growth, nonetheless, they, um, they enjoy kind of, uh, they enjoy stellar careers. Yes. So in 88, we have this irony of um, actually some of those who had argued very violently or very, sorry, violently is not the right word, um, very outspokenly for um, package reforms actually in 88 are somewhat more cautious, saying that the macroeconomic environment is not ready to slash through, <laughs> um, that in fact, the inflationary tendencies were already too high to take that radical step. So instead, one would have to impose severe austerity first and then um, push through 
um, with a big bang in, in price liberalization. However, Deng Xiaoping has this sense of urgency. So he thinks we need to go ahead. And it turns out that the announcements, the official announcements on Chinese state TV, that comprehensive price reform was going to be implemented was enough to kind of um, let the situation spiral out of control. So if people were already panicky before they then like enter into a state of outright panic, there's mass um, bank runs, panic buying of all sorts of durable goods. There are stories of people in Kunming, which is the proverbial city of spring because it has continuously mild climate hoarding air conditioners, <laughs> um, mm. which clearly is not um, for the use of air conditioners, but based on the idea that they no longer trust the value of money and therefore want to store whatever kind of goods they can get hold on. Okay, So in the summer of 88, this, as a result of this panic, first episode of um, a certain hyperinflationary um, moment, or at least very high inflationary moment, um, the leadership kind of steps on the brakes, makes a sharp turnaround, and stops this attempt at radical price reform. And this is kind of the tapestry against which then in 1989, um, the social movement on Tiananmen Square and the brutal crackdown on Tiananmen Square happens. Now to answer your question, sorry, I just felt it was important to bring in the 88 um, um, story. Um, What happens is that even though these young reformers that had emerged um, from the, the, the agricultural reforms and that had this trajectory that I've outlined, um, were opposed to the idea of a Big Bang in 88, um, they ultimately issued a statement in 89 that suggested that dialogue with the students was needed and also stood, I mean, they basically expressed their understanding for the student, I mean, not only student protests, but generally the protests on Tiananmen Square, and also stood loyal with Zhao Ziyang, who eventually goes out and speaks to the students, right? So Zhao Ziyang, who was the key economic reform leader in the 1980s, who had also helped for this young generation of economic reform thinkers, to emerge as a powerful force in China's economic reform policy making, um, falls politically, right? He loses power, he's imprisoned for the rest of his life. And this group of um, young reformers basically falls apart, a substantial amount leaves the country, several end up in prison, some kind of disappear under the radar and go into private business. So the irony, as you say, is that even though they played an incredibly important role in the 1980s in, on the one hand, legitimizing or theorizing China's pragmatist experimental reform approach, and also importantly, debunking the idea that shock therapy could be an effective reform approach, nevertheless, not all of them, but many of them, most of them, basically lose um, lose the kind of status that they had in the 1980s, if not disappear from the scene entirely. Um, whereas those who were arguing 
um, for shock therapy and who didn't get their way in the 1980s um, had already kind of broken their alliance with uh, Zhao Ziyang in 1986. So they were very quick in 1989 to accuse Zhao Ziyang to turn around um, against him <laughs> and thereby effectively standing on the side of those who initiated the brutal crackdown on, on Tiananmen yeah. Square in 1989. But then ultimately, when Deng Xiaoping in 1992 restarts reform, um, they are, I mean, they are still in their positions. Yeah. They are there. So they, they continue to um, influence economic policymaking. So one, one thing that you draw out is how shock therapists tend to ignore social and political consequences. Um, and you give a you have a quote from JK from the economist JK Galbraith, who parodies the shock therapists. So um, this is the paraphrase: casual acceptance and commitment to human deprivation are seen as essential therapy. We, and the idea being out of unemployment and hunger, they'll become this new work ethic and a work ethic, a workforce that's eager for the discipline of free enterprise. So I suppose the question is, do you think that this idea of a, of a pure model um, of shock therapy and this reliance on will to force it through, do they go hand in hand? I mean, my point is not to make overall generalizations, whenever you aim for a big model, this must come at the cost of human deprivation. But I think it is important to acknowledge that shock therapy was based on the assumption that short-term pain was necessary. In fact, even the analogy of using um, shock therapy, which by the way, was not the word primarily used in the Chinese context, but um, which was used in in, in, in in, in, in the more international discourse, but nevertheless, yeah, I was, this... sorry, I was, Isabella, I was, I was going to ask what what was the the Chinese understanding of what because shock therapy obviously is quite a it's quite a violent image. Like if anybody's seen uh, One Flavor of the Cuckoo's Nest, that analogy with like uh, you know you you're, you're convulsing the patient and it's quite painful and uh, yeah, normally done under under anaesthetic conditions, which might or might not you know be be part of that analogy. Yeah, um, I mean, as I said, Deng Xiaoping towards the late 80s, or specifically in 88, um, actually does use these these uh, these ideas of short-term pain being necessary, these ideas of Lord Guang um, when crossing through um, through the, the a certain impasse, slashing um, slashing whoever comes in his way by half in order to achieve his um, to crash through the barrier and achieve his goal. Right? I mean, th- these kind of metaphors that are also incredibly violent that might not come necessarily from the medical context, but that are um, based on the same kind of thinking where there is the idea that you have to impose severe, sharp suffering in order to achieve a more long-term goal. Whereas, of course, I'm not saying that the gradualist approach did not incur suffering. I mean, there has been, of course, an enormous amount of suffering, it has been the proletarianization of mil- hundreds and millions of people and all of that. I'm, I'm, my point is not that this was not the case. My point is that um, from a theoretical level, it, it is not based on the logic that in the first place, we have to suffer in order to achieve a, 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 a medium or long-term um, benefit. Um, 
So uh, one of the ironies I think that you bring out in the book as well, um, kind of here we're kind of broadening out uh, to some bigger themes. Uh, it's that, I mean, for the neoliberals, for Hayek, von Mises and Friedman, any concession to price controls, even if it were just on small consumer goods like milk or bread or whatever, that would inevitably lead back to central planning. So they can't make any concession whatsoever to price controls. Otherwise, it'll lead to central planning and central planning leads to totalitarianism. Um, and you point out uh, at some point in the book that actually it was hyperinflation, which led and uh, so effectively the, the loss of control over prices, which uh, which led to German fascism and to the victory of the Chinese communists. Um, so would you say that sort of is a way that that rounds, runs counter to Hayek's belief that that price controls are necessarily associated with totalitarianism? Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that these statements from Hayek and Mises come from the context of uh, the late uh, Second World War or the immediate um, post-war moment, um, where the question was whether... Um, the wartime, very far-ranging price controls were to be continued, or at least were to be partially continued, right? Um, so in some sense, the problem of transition from the Second World War to a peace economy for most of the European nations, as well as for the United States, presented a problem that is, in terms of the pure economics of it, um, quite similar to the problem of transition from a planned economy. So in that context, Hayek in the road um, to serfdom, but also um, Mises in a number of, um, of essays is arguing that um, controlling only one price would distort the overall price system um, to the extent that you would then have to control, eventually control every price. Because mm. if you control one price, the relative prices from this, say the price of make in terms of all other goods would be distorted, right? So then you would have to correct this. And then eventually the idea was um, there would be total central planning and a complete takeover of, um, of, of prices um, as a result of only the control of the price of make. Now, this is, of course, completely um, <laughs> ungrounded in facts. After all, um, many countries until today have, especially for the price of milk, certain um, state regulations, right, that affect the price of milk. Um, more, more directly relevant, even in the United States, there have been continued selected price controls. And Nixon, for example, famously in 1970, um, imposed a, a, a wage and price freeze for 19 days. Anyway, so there, ha there have been there have been examples of partial um, price controls throughout um, post-war history, um, in, in the, not only in the socialist context, but prominently in the European and Western European and American context. Now, ironically, um, in the case of China, it was, of course, not price controls, but it was the failure of price controls, the failure of the nationalists to bring hyperinflation under control that if anything, in terms of prices helped the revolution, which Mises would describe as a shift to totalitarianism, then it was the failure to bring prices under control and not, um, not, not, uh, not, 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 not any kind of partial price controls or the price, the, the control of any, any, any specific um, goods, uh, the price of any specific goods. So, so this is, I think, quite ironic. And I mean, in some sense, of course, the German hyperinflation is often quoted as an important um, stepping stone towards fascism in 
in Germany, which I'm not saying the rise of fascism in Germany can be reduced to hyperinflation. But if we are in the business of the relationship between general price movements and the rise of totalitarianism, then it seems fairly clear that the um, that that the prominent examples that come to mind um, are, are, are rather rather the opposite of what um, Hayek and, and, and Mises are postulating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, obviously, China escapes a possible catastrophe, um, similar maybe to what the Soviet Union went through um, in avoiding shock therapy. Um, but you also contrast China's economic growth during the first two decades of reform to Latin America's over a quarter of a century, and China's performance is much, much better. Um, obviously, you know, I think China's annual growth, you say in the book, was uh, higher than Latin America's during that whole period. Um, so does that say something about different economic models, about sort of the Chinese approach, which has been successful um, versus, you know, the structural adjustment that Latin America suffered? Um, or do you uh, attribute it to something else? I mean, would you say that China was on the cusp of uh, an unprecedented economic expansion and that it was something um, not directly related to any sort of debate about models, but something like indulgence to the Chinese economy meant that it was about to kind of explode in, in growth. I mean, the whole point of my book is that in the 1980s, things could have gone otherwise, right? So it was no foregone conclusion at all that China would undergo what is commonly being described as this unprecedented um, growth in terms of scale and pace. Um, And in fact, if you would have looked from the perspective of the 1980s, it did not at all look likely that um, China would be this, uh, this, this extraordinary success story in terms of economic growth. Um, In fact, when in 1988, a Chinese delegation visited Brazil, they were still marveling at at the development success of of Brazil, right? And they were consulting Delphi Neto, who is often um, considered as uh, the architect of of the Brazilian miracle, right? So so there, there was still a sense of, um, of, the Latin American experience, if anything, actually being something that China could be learning from and that China was looking up to in the late 1980s in terms of its um, its successes in, in, in modernization. Yeah. So that was, I guess, Latin America, to talk about the periods, I guess it was Latin America in the 60s and 70s serving as a model, um, you know, in Brazil's growth, kind of especially kind of 67 to 73, rather than the Latin American experience in the 1980s. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, of course, by the 1980s, Latin America was in crisis, Brazil was in crisis and all of that, right? If I mean, I'm sure you know much more about the Brazilian story than I do, but if I understand correctly, definitely was kind of brought back to control inflation. There was this whole like hope that he could replicate the kind of miracle that he had induced, yeah, but he failed, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's not. I mean, in that sense, it's not the Latin America of the 1980s. But nevertheless, um, the 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 testi- testimony to um, industrialization that was still visible, right, when you were visiting um, Latin America in the 1980s, the cars that would have been produced in Latin America, I mean, in Brazil itself, and all of that, right. So, um, in that sense, there was an admiration, at least in the case of this one delegation that I have looked into. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does this tell us that Latin America could have done what China did? Is this basically what you're asking? Or, Yeah, I mean, whether this is a proof of a certain model of, uh, yeah, I guess, of, of, of Chinese 
partial liberalization or gradual liberalization. Um, and, and, but also, also maybe looking at it from the other way around that, you know, this kind of managed capitalism uh, of the Chinese sort, whether that represents a model um, or whether it was something endogenous to China, you know, about the size of the population or the um, its agricultural capacities or anything else, which, uh, which led to growth. Yeah. I mean, my impression is that studies that have systematically assessed um, the not only economic, but also say have outcomes of, um, of uh, the Washington consensus um, policies and structure adjustment. And I should give out, give a shout out here to my colleague at UMass, Larry King, who has been doing an incredible amount of um, research on the, the mortality impacts of IMF structure adjustment programs. They had, I mean, the results are devastating, right? It's basically with all sorts of measures um, using the newest techniques of, uh, of, of econometric analysis and all of that. You can show that, um, that IMF structure adjustment programs did not only not deliver in terms of growth, but they also undermined basic public health massively increased mortality and all of that, right? So we are not only talking about um, economic uh, development in a narrow sense, but we are really talking about economic development in a more broad sense that, that um, where, where, where IMF structure adjustment seems to have um, been pretty devastating in, 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 in a large number of instances. Um, so does this then tell us that now everybody should follow the Beijing consensus? I don't think so. I think um, that one big lesson of the Chinese um, development path and also the debates that I have studied is that there is no such thing as a blueprint. There's no such thing as a magic trick that does it all. <laughs> so the whole point in some sense is that it requires an incredible amount of in-depth study um, of the local conditions and um, a finding of small entry points um, in order to uh, move towards economic development rather than there's like one recipe that is going to do it yeah. all. Now, yeah. the Chinese economy is, of course, different from a, a, a much smaller economy. So in that sense, um, I think uh, maybe we can think of, uh, of, uh, of uh, some of standard development economic policy paradigms of as like kind of like manuals that suggest, okay, this is how you have to do it, where maybe the challenge is much more like some sort of a guerrilla warfare where the odds are really against you and you kind of have to find the loopholes, find the mm. fi find the entry points, find the hooks to kind of escape the rather detrimental position um, that you are in uh, locked in in most cases yeah. in terms of development. Yeah. So just, I guess, a, a question, uh, another kind of zooming out question, like to what to what extent would you agree with somebody like Branko Milanovic, who sort of reads the whole thing, suggests that the the historic role of communism really turned out to be capitalist development, i.e. that the communists are not just in China drove development in the periphery of global capitalism in ways that wouldn't have happened under bourgeois leadership. I think it's also interesting today to, to kind of think about this in the context of, you know, the world potentially looking to China, Biden maybe doing this for new paths for development. So do you think this is, this is actually how this, the history turned out that it was uh, just a, a kind of capitalist development of the periphery? Um. 
I mean, on some level, yes. Um, on some level, I mean, even someone like Lenin would have argued that you need to go through state capitalism in order to achieve communism, right? And these Leninist type of arguments are then being revived in turn in the late 1970s. This whole idea mm. of making up lessons from capitalism is in some sense exactly that, right? At the same time, I think that it's not necessarily terribly helpful for understanding um, the history of communist revolutions in the 20th century by reducing them to capitalist projects, because even though they tried to use state capitalism as a tool towards a higher stage of development of socialism, or however you want to call it, um, and they might never have reached that higher stage. <laughs> and it's likely that we should arrive at this conclusion that they have not reached any higher stage, right? Mm. Nevertheless, yeah. I think the ambition matters. The ambition of um, seeing this as a stepping stone towards something, towards a new stage in history, um, does put this into a quite different context from a pure capitalist de developmentalist project. Now, for the Chinese case, there should be no illusions about China being some sort of wonderful place of socialism and some sort of a socialist model for the world or anything like that. I think that the intervention that my book in some sense tries to make is that instead of only thinking about the development since the late 1970s in terms of a simple transition to capitalism that was kind of a foregone conclusion and capitalism is capitalism. Therefore, whatever they argued in the 1980s, it was just, I mean, going to be capitalism anyway. So what, what do we care, right? So my intervention in some sense is it does matter quite a bit how you transition to capitalism. It does matter quite a bit how you introduce markets. It does matter quite fundamentally how the state relates to markets, whether the state becomes an encasement of markets or whether the state is an active participant in markets that actively shapes and steers markets in ways that um, enable the state to pursue developmental goals that go mm. beyond pure pursuit of uh, market efficiency. Um, and that this, at the end of the day, is incredibly consequential, um, not only for GDP numbers, but also for understanding the kind of moment that we find ourselves in, in terms of the end of history or the end of the end of history and all of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, lucky that you raise it because so one last question is just about China's own end of history, which is, I suppose, I'd be curious to hear about how far you think that after the crushing of the student revolt in Tiananmen Square, um, how far China kind of substitutes growth for any kind of ideological debate or... Um, clash of visions of reform um, and so that it ends its own, it enters its own post-political post-ideological phase after Tiananmen Square and that growth simply becomes yeah China's equivalent of the end of history yeah and that that despite China not having become liberal and, and not a democracy either so I mean um, I guess that's the perplexing thing it, as, as Phil's question hints to that it seems like China presents a sort of different model. It's not the, the usual liberal democracy, neoliberalism story, but at the same time, it seems to have its own end of history. Yeah, um, I think this 
idea that China might have entered its own kind of end of history type of moment um, might hold true for the 1990s in the early 2000s, the moment of the accession of the WTO and all of that. Um, I think that right now, I mean, depending on how we interpret the idea of the end of history, um, it's, and I mean, in some senses has also been the case in the 1990s, but probably more in the background. It's very clear um, that uh, that the Chinese leadership has ambitions that go far beyond simple GDP growth and um, that are, in fact, very directly tied into the idea of long-term historical evolution and the idea of achieving certain stages of prosperity and harmony between the environment and, and the economy and all of that. Um, now, does this mean that China somehow presents an alternative that um, helps the world to escape from the problem of the end of history. Um, I'm not so sure. Um, I, I, I don't think this is really the case. Um, but I do think that it's important to acknowledge that um, it turns out that China developing in the way in which it has developed and coming to the brink of, um, of, of presenting a serious um, competition in um sectors of the economy that are um, increasingly closer to the technological frontier compared to where China was, say, in the 90s or early 2000s, that this in itself seems to be unleashing an, a, a, a tension in the global capitalist economy that is so substantial that we are back to talking new Cold War, that we are back to um, a, a, a kind of level of tension that I personally find incredibly frightening, and that it turns out that this level of tension might not actually require the kind of big ideological confrontations that we often have been thinking about um, in terms of the history of Cold War. Yeah, that's very well put. Um, and it's a yeah. huge amount of food for thought for us, particularly, hopefully for our listeners. Um, I'm sure they'll have gotten a lot out of this. Once again, to give a shout out to the book, which will be out very shortly, How China Escapes Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Isabella, thank you so much. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and yet your book covers far more uh, than what we've just talked about. So I'd urge listeners to go check out the book uh, if they want to learn more. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for reading the book so carefully. Oh, it was my pleasure. <laughs>